0: That you're born an Italian. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great.
1: Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, spending the day with the notorious P.O.B., the Patty himself, Patrick O'Boyle, and the Queen of Italian American Cuisine, Miss Rosella Rago. And of course, all the way from Scranton, Pennsylvania, on the other side of the glass is our associate producer, Ms. Stephanie Longo. So guys, we have a very special episode today, and it's one that I think covers the bases of particularly the three of us as co-hosts here, because all of us have some interconnectedness to our guest and the many topics that we're going to talk about, because we intended to speak really about this special event that's coming up in Brooklyn, and our guest is the straw that stirs the drink to it but really his life story and his bio is so interesting and so fascinating and really covers the gamut of so much of what we're about that I think it's going to be a really great one to get all of us involved in so I'm really very happy to have the opportunity today guys I think we all have some interconnectedness to Monsignor Jamie right um
0: if you know Procon you know Jamie (laughs) that's very true That's kind of
1: accurate, I think. That's very true.
2: So Monsignor and I cooked on his show breaking bread together a few years ago. Wow. I even brought nonna. We had a great time.
1: Yeah, I think Pat says it right. If you know Brooklyn, you know Monsignor Jamie Gigantiello, who is not just the pastor of Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church, which is a in Italian America, if you're not from the New York City area, that's a, a very, very prominent appointment because Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, right across the highway from where I was born. It's the home parish of the feast of St. Paulinus of Nola and Our Lady of Mont Carmel and the Gilio of Brooklyn, which I think everybody in our audience has probably heard of, but you're going to hear more about it today from an insider. But Monsignor Jamie is also the vicar for development for the Diocese of Brooklyn. He's a chaplain for the FDNY, the New York City Fire Department. And uh, around Italian Brooklyn, he seems to be everywhere because he is on TV with his... Amazing culinary experience with his show, Breaking Bread, and now a book coming out. Someone senior, there's so much to talk about in this episode today.
3: (laughs) Yes, there is. I mean, uh, um, I still am trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. I feel like that many days. Yeah, let's let's jump right into that because I didn't realize until we started doing research. I've known you a long time. We've known each other a long time. You were one of the uh, celebrants at our wedding. But I didn't know you spent 10 years in the hospitality industry before you decided to discern for priesthood.
3: Yes. Uh, Right after high school, uh, I went to the Culinary Institute because while I was working in uh, high school for a caterer, his brother was the uh, assistant principal at the Culinary Institute of America. So that's how I really, you know, got involved with the culinary cooking. And I loved it since I was a kid. And when you're Italian. You know, you cook and you eat. So uh, I worked for 10 years. I worked at the Carlisle Hotel uh, for about four years with uh, Cafe Carlisle, Bobby Short.
0: Is that in and, Manhattan? Uh, that was the Carlisle in Manhattan?
3: Yes, the Carlisle.
0: Ah, uh, those were the yeah. days.
3: Yes. Oh fantastic. Yes. The famous Carlisle. And in fact, they just came out with a movie about two years ago on the 100th anniversary of the Carlisle. And they interviewed... All the people that worked there to tell their stories. So I got a call one day, and uh, in fact, I was up at Rayos and there was someone there from Rosewood Hotels who purchased it. I told him I worked at the Carlisle, and I started to tell them my Paul Newman story, where Paul Newman used to come in to eat, and he would while well, he was staying in the hotel filming, and uh, he would come over about ten o'clock at night. And he would ask me to make him a salad, some dressing. And he would ask for all the ingredients. And, you know, we did a lot of table side service. So I would prepare the salad dressing for him. And he would tell me what to put in. You know, some egg yolks, some anchovies, olive oil, this and that. And uh, so a couple of Sundays I made it and I gave it to him. So one Sunday I said, after I prepared the salad dressing, I gave it to him. And I said, Mr. Newman, can I taste the salad dressing? So he said, sure. So I tasted it. And I said to him, I think you better stick to acting. So he laughed. Who would have believed a couple of years later, I see all of his salad dressings all over the country. (laughs) Paul Newman salad dressing. So I told that story. So lo and behold, they put me in the movie. So every once in a while, people go, I know, I was watching television. They had this movie only at the Carlisle. And there you are telling your story. (laughs) But it, it was a great experience there. And then I went to the Intercontinental, and I worked there for four years. Uh, and you know, I worked in the kitchen for a while, but then I went into the front of the house. I was a restaurant manager, catering maitre d'. So I did all of that. And then after that, I taught for three years, believe it or not, cooking and hotel management at Erasmus Hall High School.
0: Huh.
3: And uh, it was uh, an experience, let me tell you. We had our own restaurant in the school. The students, and these were tough students from Flatbush. And uh, we had a restaurant that teachers would come in and have lunch there. So it was an experience. And then after that, that's when I entered the seminary at 30 years old.
1: You know, it's funny. You you bring up the point, right? When you're Italian, you cook and eat. And I think of all of us on here, you know, Pat and I, since the day we met, have been exchanging recipes. We're always cooking. We're always cooking for holidays. We're always, you know, big group gatherings. I, I mean, I've been cooking my family holidays since I was 18, Ro always talks about you know her educational training was to be an Italian professor, and cooking with Nona was born out of just her passion for food and tradition and stories like yes. I think there is some sense that when you're italian American by default you're a culinarian right yes. like it, it, you, there's always that that alternate route you can go and go into this kind of stuff because it's it is it's so integral to who we are
2: like we we, we just grew up. I mean, I did anyway. People ask me that all the time. Like, how did you find this passion for food? And it's like, you don't have to find it. It's there. You just have to do something with it eventually.
1: Yeah, that's very true.
2: And it's kind of like the
3: the cure-all. You know, you're not feeling good. Eat. Come on, eat. Yeah, you You have a headache, eat something. (laughs) Yeah,
1: my wife keeps yelling at me because I'm – you know the baby's starting to eat now, and I keep saying, "When do we get to give her macaroni?" And she's like, y- you know, "Why are you worried about giving her macaroni?" I'm like, "Because all these little, ki- eat all these kids, the next generation I see in my family, it's sort of fifty fifty. How many of them will eat tomato sauce? You know, you always see kids like, I don't, I want my macaroni with just butter. Or I want it with olive yeah, oil. Yeah, but I'm where like-.
0: did these kids come from? I don't know. Millennials created them.
1: I don't know. All I know is that my kids got to have tomato because sauce. It's ha- my
0: my kid. My cousin was born in 1970. His kids, I'm not making this up. Two, three years old, they're eating raw oysters. Yeah. yeah, I, I, I don't buy it because you, I, I, the chicken finger. No, because you're going to be out there. Your kid is picky. You, you all, Why is it only millennials have picky kids?
1: <laughs> is that
0: they, they, they? The chicken fingers were made for them. Yeah, that's true. My cousins' kids yeah. ate things like tripe and and snouts and and raw shell food. I don't understand. I
2: cannot picture pat eating like the dinosaur microwave chicken nuggets
1: no no way
2: throw them at his mother and be like what is this
1: <laughs> i was you know, right i i can remember like my parents left me because i would you know right down a few blocks from where monsignor is in our lady mont carmel i was in my grandmother's house and so the apartment next to us was my great aunt and when my parents would go to work i would stay with my great aunt who was like almost 90 and so what was i two She'd make me start to tell a soup, and you know, like I ate anything an adult ate. There was no question that, like I, you know, how many how many Wednesday nights in my house were lentil night? I think it was pretty much every Wednesday. No kid likes lentils.
2: Wow, that's a sexy No, but we, but we all
0: ate it. But well, well, John, where do you come? I mean, really, no kid eats lentils.
1: Who no, no, made, I said no kid likes lentils. Yeah, but it, who it,
0: made this up? I ate all this stuff. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that there's Italian kids out there. Who are you? Please come to my assistance. Come to my aid. <laughs> contact us your kid loves lentils somebody out there's
1: kids, <laughs>
0: somebody out there who's keeping up the battles kids crying mommy i want lentils i want lentils
1: <laughs> i mean look at like ro says it's not a sexy dish right but when you when your parent puts it in front of you you eat what's put in front of you and you yeah, learn again, how to like I
0: disagree food with ro. who says it's not a sexy dish
1: oh come on it's a brown mush it's not a sexy dish
2: not. I, i'm not no, saying. No, hold on a minute really one. brown mush Listen, I love lentils. I'm a lentil lover. I'm not saying I'm not. It's just like a, a five-year-old. It's not the it's not the sexiest thing you put in front of them. Like the presentation, you know, leaves something. Uh-huh. How many
0: five-year-olds are concerned about plate presentation?
1: No, listen. When you're, well, I'm telling you, from my, at least my experience, I can speak to my experience. Uh, when you're sitting there every Wednesday night and you get a big heaping brown bowl of mush, two millennials. A, it, Here we okay. go. Well, my my point well, being, I,
0: I want to go down on record. I got the priest on today. I never had those issues. <laughs> but now, even I never when had kids, those issues.
3: Even when the kids today have pasta, they don't have it with sauce and gravy. They have it with butter. Why? Yeah, butter. Where did that come from?
0: I don't know. Who,
3: who enabled these diseases? The
1: kid can't have this. With the kid butter. can't have
3: Thank
0: you. No.
1: You.
3: you had
0: hot pepper that were putting it on. Somebody was screaming, the kid's going to get sick. Don't do it. Somebody said, shut up. It's going to be all right. You t- who came up with this?
1: Yeah, it's crazy. These kids, I mean, are,
0: who are these kids? What are they going to be when they grow up?
1: But this is why we all do what we do. This is why we're all dedicated to the preservation of the culture. I I'm so about...
0: proud of my cousin's kids because they all know how to eat. Yeah. They that, were three, I... four, five years old eating normal Italian people food.
1: Yeah. I I love that.
0: We should give out, like, the Legion. what is it, the Croix de Guerre, like France gives out. We should give out medals for Italian parents in America who teach their kids how to eat right.
3: I give credit to restaurants who about five, ten years ago started to say, let's, you know, putting on their menus, Sunday sauce. At least they were trying to keep up that tradition. You know, for people that don't want to cook at home anymore, which was unheard of when we were kids. But now that people go out, at least they, they have that Sunday sauce tradition yeah. with the brajol and the meatballs.
0: But father, how can they cook at home on a Sunday? Because all their kids are going to be NCAA champions. Yes. They have to run around to 18,000 different leagues across the country yes. because all their kids are going to go to Princeton on a full sports academic scholarship. <laughs> That's the whole base of all this. Man, I can't. Yes. That's why I said everybody, you running around, they can't go to Mass on Sunday, they can't make a pot of gravy, they can't go to this, they can't go to that because the kid's in the the interconnected, what is it, the inter, inter- yeah. inter-county, tri-county traveling team, which yeah. goes all day. It starts at 5 a.m. on Sunday and it finishes at 11.59 p.m. I'm done. Yeah. While their kids are eating chicken fingers between
1: stops. <laughs> and <laughs> orange slices.
0: Orange slices. And, and the little drinky boxes. All these little drinky boxes now. Specialized drinky boxes. Apple, pomegranate, grape, organic, biodynamic, drinky boxes.
1: We should make Italian-American drink, sippy cup boxes. Sippy put, cup. Like a, a flat Sprite and a little bit of homemade red wine, and that'll be our drinky <laughs> box so that the kids get acclimated like we did. You know, that's important. Yeah. But, I, I mean, Monsignor, you, you encapsulate all of that, right? That's Sunday is sacred at the table. It's sacred at the altar.
3: Sure. You try to keep that tradition up, yes. And, you know, obviously when we were growing up, what was Sunday? Sunday was church family and food and that was it yeah you know and that's what's missing in our world today and you know they can offer these kids all they want but if you don't have that as a foundation that's the problem today and what brings us around you know the table the food yeah and what do you do at the table you talk to one another you discuss one another parents then are able to see what their children are coming uh, you know going through yeah you can't hide that at the table but if the kids are in their rooms, you know, on their iPads and, and, and isolated, that's when you have these kids going astray because the parents, they're not observing them. Yeah. You know, they don't know what's going on.
1: And you have so many generations together that you have, you know, second sets of eyes and ears with aunts and uncles and grandparents. And, right. you know, sometimes these kids develop different relationships with their aunts, uncles, and grandparents than they do with their parents. Sure. And, yeah, sure. it lets you raise the kid by tribe. I think that's so important. Yeah.
0: I'm going to tell a story because I'm just in the mood today to tell stories. My brother was in a high chair. This had to be 1988, 1989. And somebody put in front of my brother a bowl of some Franco-American macaroni out of a can. <laughs> and my grandmother stood there so excited in anticipation to see my brother's reaction. And I'm not making this up. God, be God, looking down on me twice today, we got the priest on the show. My brother sniffed it and refused to eat it. And that was the proudest moment of my grandmother's life. That's the God's Irish truth. Uh,
1: that's so good. I, we had a guest one time over at my grandmother's house on Sunday, which I was never allowed to have a guest come to Sunday. And this guy asked my grandmother if he could put ketchup on the macaroni instead of uh-huh. sauce I, I i i rarely did i see my grandmother like it looked like she looked like she was gonna faint i, I want to get smelling salts at like third grade but yeah that, that it's it to me sunday's everything and sure. Monsignor, senior you, you obviously grew up in a devout family right on the border of brooklyn and queens right you grew up in long island city
3: yes very big italian community and, you know, and that's what, you know, my cookbook and that's what the show Breaking Bread, you know, focuses on, you know, family values, our faith and food and how and all the guests that we spoke about that came on the show always talked about those traditions that we had as Italians growing up and how they formed us. And what I did was basically I took all the, you know, a lot of the show, the episodes of the show, and I put them into the the book and, you know, wrote some reflections in between. And it's all about, you know, family and food and our traditions that we're losing today with the younger generation, which it's so sad to see.
0: But Father, you bring up a word. I don't even realize if you realize that you said it, that no one understands today. Formation, which is totally different than education. Yes. It's the sister of education. They're the two pillars of, of character. And I think that people don't realize that children were formated around that table with their grandparents on a Sunday. Right. That was formation and the essence of the, of the term. Father, let me ask you, what was your experience life in the parish you grew up with? Were there priests that you grew up with, guys that, that kind of um, watered the seed of your vocation? Oh sure.
3: I mean, I'm a priest today because of the priest that I encountered uh in grammar school. There was a priest, Father Fahey, who was very, you know, active with the with the young people and of course, you know, I thought, you know, I went into the seminary at 30. But, you know, that seed is planted in you very young and I thought of it all my life. And believe it or not, one of the reasons why I didn't go into the seminary was I was such a shy kid. Believe it or not. I mean, you know, when they call you up in class to get up and to read and to speak, I would shake, and I said, "How can I ever become a priest and get up there and do this in front of people?" Well, I think I overcame that through the Holy Spirit, (laughs) helped a little bit. Uh, But it was the the priest, you know, the role model of the priest who was active in church and the community had, you know, uh, you know, different events for the kids on 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 a Friday night dances and things like that, and then you know. He was involved. I was an altar servant I used to go and I used to set up the church and decorate the church and help the priest and train all the new servers and all. And you saw the dedication of the priest of what he did. And then, you know, when I got into high school and I went down to St. Rita's church, which really was what where was I was was baptized, and I met Monsignor Casado. He was a new priest. I was 14 years old.
0: You go back with Casado that far back?
3: Fifty years this October. Wow! 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 Fifty years of friendship. If you're and, from Brooklyn,
0: you, know, you get that. If you're not from Brooklyn, you're not going to get this comment. No. But if
3: you're from no. Brooklyn, now so, we know. Casado goes no. all the way. Wow. Sure. And I have to say, he never really. And I got to know him and all. He never pushed me. You know, he always said, "You know, did you ever think about it?" We spoke about that. But he wasn't. So, oh, you got to be a priest. You got to be a priest. I, you know, I did it on my own. Uh, But it was his, you know, his experience of priesthood, his all the things that he did, his dedication, his love for the priesthood uh, and his his witness was a testament to me. And that's why I'm a priest. And, you know, that's sad today because that's what's lacking. Young people don't have that positive experience of a priest. One, because of the sex abuse scandal that has turned so many young people away from the church. Two, the kids are not in church to see, you know, what a priest does. And the third thing is that today, because of the environment in which we live, priests aren't allowed to be in small groups or alone with a young man to try to, you know, get to know them and let him see what it means and how a life, the life of a, a priest is lived out. So there's all those experiences that we had and I had that the young people today are not getting, and that's why we have a shortage of priests also.
1: Yeah, that's really very true. I mean, you know, all of us grew up with active parishes, and multiple priests in them. It's, it's such a different environment.
0: The parish and the Catholic school were the basis of the communal social life. Yes. The CYO and the Knights of Columbus and sure. your, 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 what, it, what you didn't do with your family, you did with your parish. And that's especially as kids with CYO and the Catholic Grammar School. And that's totally, totally gone.
3: And Patrick, you just said it before that the Catholic school, the Catholic education, what makes us special and unique is that we form the whole person, not just the mind with academics. Well, we we form the person, the soul, who they are, and it helps them to develop into a loving human being. That's not just about themselves. You know, it's about the community. It's about the parish. It's about your neighbor. And that's what children get in a Catholic education.
1: You know, it's really funny because I guess it's about 13, 14 years ago now when Pat and I got involved with the project my family had started with Monsignor with the then Auxiliary Bishop, Bishop Caggiano, who's now in the Diocese of Bridgeport in Connecticut as the bishop. But we all in the Diocese of Brooklyn got involved. uh, Bishop DiMarzio obviously was our uh, ordinary then, got involved in this idea of creating a radically different Catholic uh, academy called Pope John Paul II Family Academy. And when I was doing that and working on the development side and and working on the Catholicity, I kept coming back to this conclusion because our our student population was all uh, under the poverty line uh, students in the Diocese of Brooklyn. And they were all, I would say, 99 percent were the sons and daughters of immigrants. And I always thought, as the byproduct of parents who were children of immigrants who thank God for Catholic education it gave us everything— and I used to say to myself, you know, what everybody's missing is that Catholic education was a vehicle for a, a, a comparatively rocket-powered progression into the American dream, right? What what Catholic education did for immigrants in this country for 100-plus years, it never gets really valued, and without it, it's going to make a much more difficult path. And sure enough, today, this morning, as I'm doing my morning news debrief before our recording— I saw an article in the Los Angeles Times that basically said the exact same thing. It said, you know, Catholic education was a golden ticket for immigrants for generations. It no longer really exists in Los Angeles. I mean, you know, it, it, there's schools, but nowhere near where it, what it used to be with the parochial model. Monsignor, you are, amongst your many job titles, one of your great tasks is leading the Futures in Education Project at the diocese of Brooklyn. Yes. Can you just briefly tell us a little bit about what that does and, and what, you know, give us the sort of take on Catholic education as it exists right now, particularly at the grade school level?
3: Well, I mean, Futures in Education was started almost about 30 years ago, and since then we've given out over 100 110, 120 million dollars to children on the poverty level. I mean, their household income total has to be less than $30,000 a year. And as you can see, Catholic tuition is by no means able to be fit into that budget. So futures helps children who want to come to a Catholic school to get a, a scholarship to come. We give out every year about $7 million in scholarships that we raise. Uh, to these children that would wish to come to our schools. And like you said, 90% of them are all minorities. They're all people under the poverty level. They're first, you know, first generation Americans, but they, they have faith, they're Catholic, and they want the best for their children. And they know that education, and they know a Catholic education, is the foundation that they need to make it in life. Otherwise, they'll have little hope. Because in the other schools that they go to, they don't get that foundation. And they don't, also, they don't build up that self-esteem in themselves, that they are special, that they have something to offer, and that they can make a difference in this world. And that's what they get in a Catholic education.
0: It's a concept of vocation of the laity. Yes. It's a concept that everybody's called to do something.
3: Yes. I, I think it's so funny
0: that you should touch on that because, because reflecting back, I think the one thing that you get out of that kind of environment is that um, the guy who's the CEO, or the guy who builds rockets, or the guy who cures cancer, or the guy who sweeps the floor and cleans the toilet—they're all part of a mosaic of humanity that make it happen. Like the farmer who farms and feeds you and the garbage man who makes sure that your block is not covered with rubbish. Like all those people have a part to play in the world. I don't know where else you see that.
1: And a dignity.
0: Yeah. Everybody has a dignity of person and a call to holiness. I know when they built the, when they um, just put that big marble universal call to holiness um, piece of artwork above the door at the Basilica in DC, the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception. I was like, yeah. it's such a Catholic concept, and it's, it's such a concept of the world we grew up in that everybody's got, everybody's part of the mosaic. Nobody's worth yeah. less than someone else. And that's so foreign, I think, to today's worldview that it's almost bizarre in some senses.
3: You know, and that's what they see. You know, We teach them that every one of us, we are you know, a, a vessel of Jesus. We're a tabernacle of God. So there's something good in us that we have to share with others. It's coming from within. It's not coming from the outside. You know, that's what I get when people that say they're, you know, they're spiritual, but they're not religious. And, you know, the first thing I say, one, who are you accountable to? And two, what does that mean that you're spiritual? Oh, you're a good person. Uh, you're good to the people. Why? Because it makes you feel good. But maybe it's also your responsibility that even if it doesn't, make you feel good. You have a responsibility to do good for people, you know, and and I think that's what's lacking sometimes, you know, with people that say, you know, they're spiritual, but they're not religious. Look, let's face it. The church is human. You know, once you put humanity into anything, you're going to have issues. You're going to have, you know, things that go wrong, but the church itself, okay, that's the vessel to God. You know, that's our connection with God and Christ. And that's so important in our world. And it's unfortunate that, you know, we get all this negative, negative publicity, and it's sad. It's sad.
1: You know, you are in a very unique position. And I, I want to spend the second half of the episode really talking about the parish, the feast, everything that's coming up. But this is a good kind of introduction to that because you are in a parish that, like I said in the introduction, for an Italian-American, you really can't ask for a better place, right? You've got this manual tradition that's one of the most important and famous in America, let alone Italian-America. You have a neighborhood that still has a, a decent handful of, of Italian and Italian-American residents and parishioners around, but you are also in really what was the ground zero, I guess, of this hipster gentrification of Brooklyn. Like I remember my dad coming home. After we moved in 93, uh, he came home and there was an article in the Utney Reader, which was like the intellectual, you know, magazine, uh, incomparable intellectual magazine. And it said um, basically that our neighborhood was the center of hip in the United States. And he couldn't yeah. believe it because, you know, when he was growing up, houses were like $30,000. They're made out of shackle wood, you know. <laughs> exactly. And there was uh, – I, when I was a kid, I played in an abandoned car lot next door. You know, I, it was like – it didn't – it was nothing sexy about the neighborhood. But – for 30 years, it has been the epicenter of this gentrification revolution, so now you've got a ministry to what's left of a cultural Catholic Italian community, but also a lot of people for whom Catholicism and a parish are completely foreign culture, and I know you've done a lot of work in developing ministries for those people, yeah. in reinventing, I guess, the, the uh, idea of Catholic education for them from the earliest stages up right now you guys have uh i guess what still still preschool and is it kindergarten yet at the parish or you're you're aging up
3: yeah we have we have a nursery school it's basically from two to four year olds and it's a preschool yeah and hopefully we would get them to feed into our local catholic schools uh to um try to Reach out to the parents. I mean, when you say people that are, are separated from the Catholic faith, they're, they're, they're void of God, let alone the Catholic faith. They're void of God at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, the neighborhood, uh, most of our Catholics in our parish have moved out. I mean, a lot of them still, you know, some of them live in the area, but I would say 60 percent of them that come to the feast have all moved out of the neighborhood, but they come back. Because it's it, at one time it was a national parish, national Italian parish. It had no boundaries, and still that they live up to that, and it's something uh, that you know is unique about that
1: parish. So let's talk about the Gilio. right? Because it is really the pin your pride event of the whole thing, right? Yes. Could, can you give us a, a brief history of what this feast is and how it came to Brooklyn and why we still celebrate it? Sure. Well, I mean, first
3: of all, the tradition goes back to Italy. The tradition goes back to the 400s from a a town in Nola in southern Italy. And many of the people from that town have settled in Williamsburg area and different areas throughout, you know, the New York area. And, of course, they brought with them their traditions. And one of the traditions that they brought was the dancing of the Giglio. And the tradition has it that in the fourth century, St. Paulinus was the Bishop of Nola. And at that time, there were a lot of pirates going around capturing Christians. And they came to the town and they captured a number of young children and and women. And they they brought them back to Africa. And the tradition goes that he went and negotiated their return. And when he negotiated the return, as they came back on a boat, the people in the town greeted them with lilies. And as they came down the mountain, it looked like a giant lily coming down the mountain. After he died and was canonized, they started this tradition of building a statue in his honor. And I guess in the typical Italian fashion, which is a little bit competitive,
1: each parish started to build a statue Bigger and bigger. Yeah, I think. <laughs> of course. Yeah, because in NOLA, they have, what, seven gilio? They, they do? They
3: have seven parishes, and each parish builds their Oh, and they decorate it. They have a theme, and they dance it through the streets, the narrow streets, into the square. And at the end of the day, the, the, the day uh, has the climax when all these gilio are in the square. And then they, they have a competition, which is the most unique and uh, which is the tallest. And of course, they brought this tradition back to Brooklyn when many of them came here. And men, there were a couple of, I grew up in Long Island City, St. Reed is in Long Island City. We had the Giglio when we were a kid. That's what, how I first got introduced to it. And there were other, Harlem, up in Harlem, Our Lady of Mount Carmel in Harlem, they have the Gelio.
0: You know the Harlem story, right? To go back on what you said earlier. They're from Blujan. Okay. And Brujan is a town next to Nola. And um, a man in Brujan, the 1880s, his son was super sick, very, very sick. And he said to St. Anthony, who was the patron of Brujan, heal my son and I'll build you a Giglio better than Nola. Tell me how much more tank can you get? (laughs) (laughs) They negotiated with God. They negotiated. (laughs) We're going to have to do Nola. That's why Brujan, the people in East Town, the Brujan people, they do St. Anthony. Yes, all based on we're going to outdo Nola. Right. That's why we are Italian. Anything you can do, I can do better. Right. But just so right. people out there, because we have so many listeners from all around the country and different backgrounds. I'm telling you, you listened to me a long time. Listen to me on this one. You have to see the Giglio once in your life. Yeah. Yes. It's like the eighth wonder of the world. The number one wonder of New York. Was it a hundred guys? How many guys carry this? 125 guys carry it. 125 Italian men yes. carry how many stories high is it? It's about five stories high. It weighs two tons. A five-story high, yes. two-ton yes. plaster obelisk, which they, they build yes. brand new every year. Every year it has a theme. Yes. And you have 120 Italian guys moaning and groaning underneath because they have to let you know that it's a big to-do. Right? Is it that heavy? I've never carried, but I do hear there's a rumor that John might be on the GIO this year with Monsignor Jamie. I don't know if (laughs) that's going to be confirmed. I know John has some childhood wishes on a bucket list, so I don't know if Monsignor Jamie anything is possible. Anything is possible. (laughs) That's an Italian priest. But I'm telling you, if you're if you're a Protestant, a a a pagan, a Zoroastrian, you don't believe in God. You're agnostic. You're you're some whatever you are you got to see the Gilio. Yeah. If you're a Catholic, you go to Mass three times a day, the Latin Mass, you got to see the Giglio. Whatever you are, you have to see the Giglio. The Giglio, to me, is just one of those things. And there's now the, the pirates that Monsignor Jamie's is talking about with the Saracens. Yes. So just from a historical perspective is the Saracens would raid coastal towns in Italy, right. capture people, and they would be, let's say, 10, 15 miles off the coast. And if you could come up with ransom money, Um, They would let you have the hostages back. And if you didn't, before the Royal Navy would capture the Neapolitan Royal Navy, they would get in their boats, go back to Africa and sell these people into slavery. That's an absolute true story. Matter of fact, that's why the um, the Mercedarian fathers were founded, to go into North Africa, to the Saracen markets and to redeem Christian uh, slaves. So what happened was Nola is I wouldn't say it's a coastal town. It's not that far off, um, right off of Mount Vesuvius. The Saracens came in, captured the Nolani. And Nola, for those of you who don't know, is also St. Felix and Nola was the inventor of the church bell. So Nola is also the home of the church bell. Mm. And um, the Saracens came, captured all these poor people, and um, San Paulino was able to save them. So that's why the people of Nola rejoiced. So now that you got the history, you got to see the tower. Because like I said, I have seen the most hipster, hipster covered in tattoos 18 different colors of, of, hair piercings in places. I gag, I said, how do these people live with holes in the places they got holes? They are mesmerized by this. And so I have to tell you, come if you do not think it's impressive, I will eat my sneakers in front of you in front of Julio. If you can <laughs> look me straight in the eye, like I said, no matter whatever your credential background is, wow. If you can't say, wow, I will eat my sneakers. If you go and see this, it is, I can really say, and this is not just hype because we got the priest on the phone. You will never, ever see any Italian American manifestation. Maybe the fight of the angels in Boston, anywhere in the range of the GLEO in Brooklyn. So pack up your family, come, and John will be there on the GLEO. (laughs) John senior Jamie has a merciful heart. I'm done.
3: And Patrick, Patrick, remember, they have to come to see the GLEO in Brooklyn. Because there's none like it anywhere. Yeah, else.
0: yeah, yeah. That's right. This is a Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah, that's true.
3: Our feast survived all through the years, and it's the biggest one. First of all, with it, with the second largest feast in the city after San Gennaro, but also the tradition of the Gilio and the boat. No other parish had the boat. We have the boat and the Giglio. Yes, and it is the largest feast. We get the largest crowds, and it's the only feast that really has been ongoing the only time it stopped was they didn't have the Gilio. they had the feast during the war and also we didn't have it during the pandemic two years ago only twice in over 100 years that Gilio was not lifted
1: let me add color to this too because people have to understand when we say lift right there's 120 guys and it is all men that lift they're all Italian American it's a real confraternity they they run this thing over the course of the year they have a hierarchy you have the capos and the parans and all these it's it's an organization of who is the leader of the dance the conductor of the dance who is guiding these guys because they're you know they're under this two ton piece of architecture right then of course as monsignor says there's also the boat representing the saracens and the and the return of the kids and they start at different sides of the feast and on top of the main gilio is a full band playing the music yes it's there's the d- dignitaries and guests monsignor will be up there for, to open with the blessings and and so these guys i mean it's it's very labor intensive this is a real devotion because it's not like you're that 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 weight doesn't spread it spreads over 120 people but it's still a lot of weight and they dance these things they don't just walk them and process them they they actually dance they lift that they move the the gilio they follow the music they follow the directions of all of the leadership and the and the perans and the capos and everybody and the visual eloquence of it is unbelievable because they get these two statues to eventually meet and kiss in the middle of the feast and then go back the other way it's all day and to talk about the vitality of this feast look san genaro is a big feast we love it we've covered it we go every year. It's fun. It's a, it's a street festival, and it has has the parade, and it has the procession. But the Giglio has the Giglio Sunday lift. It has a night lift. It has an old-timers lift. It has a children's lift. It has children from the community who come back and lift a miniature version of the Giglio. It's it's a wooden one. It's nowhere near as heavy. But there's so much going on. There's the Questa the on the day before to give out blessed bread and to gather support. Yeah, there's just so much going on, you know?
2: John, didn't you have the Giglio band at your wedding?
1: Oh, I sure did. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. I mean, the Giglio band, let me just talk about that for a second. There's great feast bands in America. We're very lucky. There's still a few really great feast bands. But the Giglio band can pretty much play anything you request. And
0: The one song they play over and over and over and over and over and over again.
1: Well, we have the greatest, we have da, the greatest da, da, feast. Da, da, Come on. We have the greatest feast anthem ever created in the Giglio.
0: Yes. Can I get I a gazoo? Left... And like hum that on the gazoo. <laughs> yeah. Can you got me a gazoo for Christmas because I hum all these things on the show. And yeah, it sounds annoying, that. but I could Is there anybody out there? Do we have any gazoo experts? Please contact
1: Stephanie. I want to get a It has to be gazoo. a southern Italian gazoo made southern, in Naples. And because I'll
0: tell you why. The Giglio has a number of songs that were written by a guy called Tutti Ferrara. um, Father, can you still get that album? Is that still sold on a CD? um, They have copies of it. Yes, yes, they do. He wrote cha-chas and he wrote all Neapolitan language, some in English, like cha-chas to dance on Paulino to rumbas, all kinds of. If you think of like Copacabana, Ricky Ricardo, 1950s, he wrote that kind of music for 120 Italian guys to dance a five-story obelisk of plaster with San um,
1: San Paulino
0: Paulino on top. I mean, what what more do you want? And that music is still being played today. And I love, love the CDs. Father, they still make those awesome T-shirts. I used to come every year. Yes, every year we have T-shirts, yes. They have, if you're a T-shirt person, they have the greatest themed T-shirts in the universe I sometimes stopped wearing them because everybody would ask me questions and it would get annoying. Oh, is that an Italian thing? If you want a T-shirt of T-shirts, it is worth it for the trip to get, just to get the T-shirts. It's <laughs> phenomenal.
2: New episodes of Old Favorites are on Mediaset Italia this May. A new season of Freedom will take you on brand new adventures, amazing you with the mysteries of history and nature, airing Wednesday nights. Test your smarts with the primetime edition of popular quiz show Avanti Un Altro every Thursday night with host Paolo Bonolis. And don't forget to catch the end of this round of Amici on May 15th and the Best of Edition on May 22nd. Plus, new episodes of Uomini e Donne, Forum, Cotto e Mangiato, Verissimo, and more. Mediaset Italia brings you the best television entertainment from Italian channels Canale 5, Italia 1, and Rete 4. So you'll never miss a moment from Italy. Call your local television provider and ask about Mediaset Italia today.
3: And just to give you a little, John touched about the hierarchy of the Giglio. I mean, you have the number one capo. Then you have the number two and number three. Then you have the apprentices who are going to become capos. Then you have the lieutenants and each lieutenant has a crew. And each crew has about 30 or 40 guys under the Giglio. So the capo, the paranza, gives the cue to the lieutenants, and then the lieutenants pass on the cue to the lifters, when to turn it, when to lift it, when to drop it. And they wait a lifetime to become the number one. And you have guys that start out on the the children's Giglio and we have the children's deal, you know, to introduce this to them. And then they wait their whole life just to become the number one capo. The guys become capos at 40, 50, 60 years old. And they wait their whole life to become the number one capo. And it's a dream that they have.
0: And the capo barons. Right. He's like the guy in a square dance who calls the moves. Right. Describe as someone never saw. It. So the So what you have is. This team of 120 guys that are brought that are broken down into like management cruise, because they right. yeah, crews because they all have to they have to work in sync. Right. And the gaba Gabba Barans is the because Barans is not Budan, I think, for a fishing boat. The gaba Barans, which is like the captain, his job is to make calls so that these guys can dance it in sync so that the whole thing doesn't tumble over. I mean, it's a serious. So think you're 14. You're starting off as a runner, bringing water or wine for these guys to drink while they're
3: sweating. Water, water, no water, wine, no water, drinking as a digilio.
0: And you're starting off as a runner, and then you become a lifter. And then, and then you, yeah, like Montsen, you said, you go your whole life going up the chairs until the day comes that you have the stick, right? Because the Capo Baranza has a stick in his hand, right? Yes, so yes. It's almost like a symbolic scepter that he uses to show his authority and to make the calls and almost direct like a baton to direct the lifters. Am I correct, Monsignor? Like that's the best honors to have that. But the job I would love now, John and and Monsignor talk about like two statues or two, I guess, crafts meeting. It's because you have the Giglio, the the long obelisk, but then you have a boat with the symbolic pirate on it. So you have a hairy Italian from the neighborhood dressed as a 16th century or fourth century Turk, I guess. And, He's kind of like the villain almost. Am I correct, Monsignor? A playful villain, I would say. Yes. So he's the playful villain. And the dancing, they dance the Giglio on the day. that Not all, not all lifts have the, the, the ship, but they dance the Giglio to kind of meet, almost kiss with the pirate ship. Because that is symbolic of um, San Paulino liberating the prisoners from, from the Turkish pirate captain. Monsignor, why don't you talk a little bit about, about the boat? Because the, the, there's a lot to do with the boat too, right? How do they pick the guy who becomes the villain for that year? Is that almost like the Cabo Barans, the same kind of competition?
3: Yeah, they call him the Turk, the Turk. And he's chosen every year. And usually it's someone that's been active in the feast that wants to get involved and become and move up to become a lieutenant or a capo. So that's like the first uh, real position that you get after, you know, just being a lifter with the boat. Then you become the Turk, and that's like an honorary thing that will put you in line to then become a capo someday. So he's the one that he stands on the boat, obviously. Uh, He dresses up as a Turk, and and he, uh, you know, he really plays the part. And it's a fun thing to see and watch.
1: I can remember when I was living in the neighborhood and working in the neighborhood years ago, because uh, I went back after college, and I was working there with a lady named Denise Galasso, whose family, yes. her husband, Phil Galasso, his family's been involved forever, and they still live in the neighborhood. And I, I happened to be there and working with her the year that he was the capo of the entire feast. And I can remember just the build up to it, the pride, and like... You know, they decorated the house and the band came and picked him up in the. I mean, it's a huge honor.
3: Giglio Sunday is the day, you know, like you said, they pick you up at the house. You start out at eight o'clock in the morning. The band picks me up and then we go to each capo and then we ultimately go to the number one capo and the Turk. And then we all march from their houses throughout the neighborhood for about two hours. And we march right into church and we begin with the mass. And then after the mass, we walk out, and we would bring the statue of St. Paulinus into the church, not the Gilio, the statue. and then we walk out of the church and we go right to the Gilio and we lift the Gilio all day. So it's a whole day event. Gilio Sunday is like Easter Sunday for people from Nola.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's seamless. That, that, that's the thing. It's seamless. Like there's so many listeners. you know, I, I've been blessed, so many of you contact me. I love talking to everybody. I wish I could talk to more people more of the time. And so many people um, who've been removed, uh, people who are maybe Italian genetically, but they were adopted by non- non-Italian parents. That's a lot of uh, people that listen to us that have these questions, or people that, you know, they had one Italian parent and they grew up in the middle of Mediganistan, like the, you know, the middle of nowhere America, they, they didn't have these things. If you want to understand what it is to be Italian, if you want to understand what it is to be from Campania. I think the Giglio is the number one anthropological trip that you can make, regardless of your own faith or faith background or lack thereof, or however you see the world from a spiritual sense. Because from the morning, from the Saturday night, the questor I say Equestor, right? I don't even know the Navidad for it. A Aquesta. Equestor, a quest, yeah. What Equestor was, the money to do the feast, people would, they would go around, collect the money, and then give people who gave money, the same way as, as I knocked on your door for when I did my feast for Marona de the they would go, the, the people who were super devout would go collect the money, and then when you made a donation, instead of giving you a holy card or a keychain, they gave you bread. I mean, how much money about and can you get? Yes. And then from the whole day that Monsignor described it, because in the old days, the society members would all ma- get together at the club. Like, you would go to the masses of society. You were together as a family, as a society, as a Baez for the whole day. And you see that so much at the Gigilia. If you just because you're going to see it, but there's something when you're there, you feel it. And I can't describe it to you unless you're there. And it's like a, an electricity that radiates from this group of people. They're like particles that get together and they become like a this this Italian-American nuclear reactor. And no matter, even if you don't want to be swept into it, you're going to be sucked in. Yep. If you don't want that feeling, don't go because you're going to be sucked into it. And if you follow them all day long and you want to understand Genetically, what's inside you and where you come from, if that's your goal, that is the place Giulio Sunday in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg to be for the whole day from dawn to dusk, and then you're going to get it.
3: And also, it's, it's good. You know, it's not the Gilio, obviously, is the major focus of the feast, but it's also the Italian traditions of the food. The Zeppelin, the sausage and peppers.
0: I miss the sweetbreads. Remember, for the Fazulos? Yes. That yes. guy was like 150 years old. Yes.
3: Right? Yes.
2: Monsignor. Yes. What is your favorite thing to eat at the Giglio feast?
3: My favorite is the Brajol with the hot peppers and onions. And of course, the calzone. The calzone is, you know, is the dough with the ricotta inside and the ham. Those are my favorites of the whole feast.
0: I'm starting a campaign for the sweetbreads. <laughs> I, that's honest. I used to love those sweetbreads because he used to like barbecue them. They were like grilled on mm-hmm. the charcoal. Hi, you uh, should
2: take it over. You should have Pat's sweetbread stands across the country.
0: Can we do it together? You can be the sweetbread's queen, bro. We could get you a crown. I don't know how John John's autistic. I artistic. Just wanna come know up with what the
2: next crown's gonna look like.
0: <laughs> sweetbread <laughs> crown. We could, we could we could fry sweetbreads, bro. You and me. It would be a lot of
2: fun.
1: Yeah, you know what? I've always wanted a food truck. Maybe we do like a tripe and sweetbreads food truck, and we just go from feast to feast. It
2: is, it, yeah, how many other businesses are you going to start, JP?
1: <laughs> You're absolutely <laughs> right about that. All right. If anybody out there wants to be a sweetbread tripe operator, let me know. I'll fund it. We'll start this. We'll go, we just got to go to the feast. It is true, though. You, you you go, and, like, it's an amazing feast because of all of its authenticity and so much going on, but it's also just a really fun Day in the neighborhood and it's lively and there's rides and games and it's got everything you could ask for. What
2: um guests are gonna uh, any any special performances? Because the last time I was at the GDO feast, well, you know, before you know the the world was ending and stuff, Alfio was performing.
3: Yes, yeah, he he performed a couple of years, but now he's back in Australia uh, taking care of his uh, his mother. I mean, his father passed away, so yeah, you know, I'm in touch with him. But, you know, hopefully when he comes back, he'll, you know, he'll be back. Love it. Uh, I'm trying to get uh, Chris Macchio. Uh, yes, Chris mm-hmm. is going to perform one night. And uh, it's always a, f- a fun, fun night. You know, we have a band every night. And, uh, you know, we get them to play some traditional Italian music, but also a lot of, you know, current music. And, you know, we try mm-hmm. to reach out to the new people in the neighborhood because, uh, you know, they're interested, they're curious, as you said earlier, they're fascinated by these traditions because they don't have them. And when they come, you try to talk to them and you try to engage them. Uh, and you know, I wear my collar all the time in the, ch- in the parish and, you know, they don't know what a priest is, or they, they, they have these, uh, you know, uh, concepts of a priest that, you know, they don't talk to people. They're different. They're odd. They're weird.
2: Wait, but you're not like a regular priest. Like you're a cool priest.
3: Oh, thank you. You are a
1: cool, priest.
3: Yeah. Is that why you made me? You asked me to do your wedding it's since Monsignor Casado couldn't make it.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh He
3: remembers.
1: Wait a minute. Time out. Time out. Time out. Let me be fair to Row. There's a geography to that too. Monsignor Casado's down by her part of Brooklyn now. Okay. There, those are two different Cassata Italian Brooklyn. You up and
2: go ha ha ha. She.
0: What did Casado say? Did he kind of like rub what? on your face a little bit? Oh yeah.
2: I had the dream team. I had the dream. The you know the marriage was a disaster, but the, I had the dream team. <laughs> uh, for, you know, Monsignor yeah. senior Casado married me on my on my rehearsal dinner, and then right. did you know the 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 spectacle? You know, he was yeah. he had, I couldn't have had two two more qualified. I, I had the the best of the best. I mean,
3: oh, thank you. Good thing Casado and I are best friends because we joke with each other all the time. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You got to tell Monsignor Casado, when you talk to him, I want him on the podcast. One of the most impressive Italian-American, I'd say, presentations I ever heard was he one time spoke for John Lee O'Hire, who's kind of like your diocesan historian. And he spoke about being at St. Rita's when the big Italian immigration came in the 70s. And he talked about how, I guess, whoever your pastor was at the time. Monsignor Joe DeMarco. How Joe DeMarco taught him how to be an Italian priest. Yes, I thought it was one of the most fascinating conversations I ever heard because, you know, so many of our listeners had family that came in 1880 or 1890 or 1900, but especially in North Jersey, we had a huge influx of Italian immigrants in the 70s. Yeah, and these Italian parishes were revived because the need for Italian speaking services and clergy all all came back into necessity, and that was kind of like in the early years of Monsignor Casada's priesthood. So I would love for him to come on one day and talk about that. And I'd also like you to come back and talk about how is it dealing in an Italian parish with hipsters? Because that's got to be a whole other episode.
1: I can tell you there are no finer Italian priests, and I use that title as a whole you know, a whole word, Italian priests, than Monsignor Jamie and Monsignor Casada. And the first time Nicole met uh, Monsignor Casada, we were at Bimonte celebrating something as a family. Monty's is a hundred twenty year old Italian restaurant in the neighborhood. It's also active in the feast. And uh, you guys were at a table in the corner, and we were at a table in the front. And you were making your way through to 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 leave, and every table stopped you, and you had to go over. and Nicole said, "There's nothing more Italian, like Italian <laughs> village, than the two priests leaving the table and they got to stop. Who's going to tell them they need a blessing? Who's going to tell it? It took you like an hour to get to us at the front of the restaurant." And I said.
3: Oh father,
0: oh father, yeah. oh father, yeah. father, oh, you gotta come. Oh father, my sister was asking for you. <laughs> How you? How's my Senior facade,
3: How's he doing? Oh, I can't remember the last time I saw. Oh, well, it's been so long, father. Fat, <laughs> you got yeah. that good, you got
1: that good. <laughs> <Bad>. <laughs> That's spent a lot of time in the rectory. Oh, God. Uh, so okay, so before we go, we've had such a great time, and we'll, we will have you back because there's so much to talk about. We haven't even talked about your cookbook really coming out, breaking bread. When's that come out?
3: It's coming out hopefully another month. And uh, Rosella uh, Nona is in the book. That episode. Oh uh, my goodness. With Nona. Yes, so she's in the book. Uh, Lydia is going to do a, a foreword on it, so it should be a great book. It, 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 I'm, I'm excited about it.
1: Well. If we can't link it from the show page now, uh, if, if there's a website for it, we'll certainly put it on. But if not, we'll fill everybody up out in the future. And we're going to link all of the information on the, the feast and just remind everybody what the dates are and how long it runs. And
3: Yeah, it's July 6th to the 17th and the 10th and the 17th. The 10th is Gilio Sunday and the 17th we lift the Giglio again. We call that Old Timer's Day. We invite all the old capos back. And then on the Wednesday evening, the 13th, we have a night lift. And that's spectacular because the Gilio's all lit up.
1: I love
0: that night lift. Yes.
1: That's my favorite. Yes. Yeah, that's a
3: beautiful thing. Yeah. And don't forget, it is the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel as well. And the 16th, we go around with the float and Our Lady through the streets of the neighborhood. So it is a great feast. It runs for 12 days. Uh, we have a children's night where all the rides are all included, and it's a great time. So come out.
1: Well, I can tell you that we are going to be there because Monsignor has been working with us on helping us. You know, if you're a fan of our YouTube series, Greetings from Italian America, we're going to be out there, the three of us filming on Julio Sunday and, and a couple of the other subsequent events before and after. So we're going to be there if you're uh, interested in coming out.
0: John, I'm confused. I thought we were going to be there because you were going to be on the Giglio with Monsignor.
1: <laughs> Pat, exactly. I tell you what, I was Pat. Confused. If Monsignor brings me with him on the Julio, will you lift a, a song? No, I'm gonna be on. I'm
0: gonna be on the pirate boat. That's the guy I.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm that's... In the pirate ship. So my brother used to lift, and I've never lifted. I should probably, I should probably do that one year. But that's I'm not a very physical person. Those who know me, so. well,
0: you're not Nolan either. That they probably. I'm not Nolan either. Probably yeah, say, "What's this state doing here?"
1: Yeah, exactly. For, it's half Sicilian. Yeah, well, half Sicilian, Sicilian huh? <laughs> but it's going to be a special week at 12 days, and we'll be there for parts of it. So hopefully, everybody comes out. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna close us out as I like to do sometimes with a little bit, a little sampling of the Giglio song "O Giglio e Paradiso" by Tutti Ferrara. Because I can say in closing, you know, my my family left the neighborhood when I was four. We came back for on and off for years for my grandparents, and of course for the feast. And somebody once said and somebody else who had left the neighborhood at some point said, if you've lived there some part of your life, if you had family who lived there, if you're in any way connected to this feast, the moment you hear the beginning of this song, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you are transported, and you can't help but tap your foot. And that's true for so many people that I know that live in the neighborhood or have left the neighborhood or have connection to the feast or the parish. Once you hear those beats, this song stays with you, and it, and it gives you... It gives you Goose pimples. I mean, it really does. It gives you chills. And uh, I'm getting them right now talking about it. And I cannot wait to be there and be a part of it. So, Monsignor, thank you for taking the time. I know you're busy and being with us.
3: Thank you so much. And I look forward to coming back. And, John, I just want to add one thing to what you just said. What you said was wonderful, and it's true. It also reconnects you with all of your loved ones who have passed on. Absolutely. Because right away you think of them when you were a kid. They were standing next to you. They were lifting the giulio. They were having a good time. And they all come back to you as soon as you hear that song. And it brings tears to your eyes. Yeah. Tears and joy.
1: Yeah. If you are from that certain sliver of Brooklyn, it is your national anthem, really. It, it, it's just uh, it's a part of everything. We, we play it at our family weddings. We play it at Christmas. And yes. we're going to play it out for you now so you know it and hear it. And hopefully you come and join us and celebrate really what is one of the absolute bucket list experiences in Italian America. So, we hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. We look forward to seeing you at the Giglio. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. i